Welcome to In the Know with Erin Glow, a podcast bringing you information and inspiration from people in all walks of life. This is Selective Mutism, the Therapist's Perspective. Welcome to episode three of In the Know with Erin Glow. Today's episode is the final installment of a three-part series on the childhood social anxiety disorder called selective mutism. In this part, we'll be discussing the disorder from the therapist's perspective, so I'll get right into introducing my special guest, and that is Dr. Esther Hess. Dr. Hess is a developmental psychologist. She specializes in working with children who have developmental disorders like selective mutism. She has over 40 years of experience and is a national and international speaker on selective mutism and other developmental disorders. She is a former board member of the Selective Mutism Association and an author of her first book, which is about how to use therapy dogs in a session, and that book's called Alfie, You and Me Are Twins, The Life and Times of a Therapy Dog, and she's also written a lot of other chapters and journal articles. So I'm so glad to have her on the podcast So welcome, Dr. Hess. Thank you so much for being here. It's absolutely my pleasure, Erin. Thank you for having me. Of course. When I first thought of doing an episode like this with a therapist, you were the first one to come to my mind. And I've conversed with you on and off about selective mutism over the past few years. And you even attended one of my support group meetings that I held for parents of children with selective mutism. So I know you're very knowledgeable on the subject, and it's your profession, so I'm really excited to speak with you. So Thank you. Yeah. Why don't we start off with you telling us a little bit about your career? What made you want to be a psychologist, and how did you end up helping kids with selective mutism? Well, thank you, Erin. Again, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, and I was just sharing with you how wonderful technology is that if there was something good to come out of the pandemic... Uh, It is the awareness that we can just use all different means of communication, which is so critically important, especially to our children who have selective mutism, where communication sometimes is obviously one of their their biggest challenges. But uh, I've been doing this for over 40 years, and uh, in terms of being a a developmental psychologist, and I just feel very blessed every single day that I get up in the morning because I absolutely love what I do. I started out when I was in college thinking that I would follow my dad's path. He was a child psychiatrist and I was pretty sure I'd go into some form of medicine. But what ended up happening was I would be in my dormitory room after hours and I would have my friends just sort of casually but regularly come to me with their problems. And for some reason, it just, I sort of knew the answers, just things began to make sense. And uh, I mean, to the point where actually it was sort of a joke, you had to make an appointment with the future doctor, uh, you know, Dr. Hess, to, to chat about what was going on in their lives. And I ultimately realized that I was following my passion by going into uh, this line of a career. And I've never looked back. I mean, it's just been something that I just, as I said, get up every morning and I feel very blessed to do what I do. Uh, I'm a developmental psychologist because I first started out going ahead and getting my PhD. And I'll go back to referencing my father, who has always been my mentor. And he suggested when I asked him, like, what do you think now is the next 
next area that I should go into? And he said, well, you know, you're great with kids. At the time, I had three of my own. And he says, why don't you think about doing uh, you know, child psychology? Because there aren't a lot of people who are very good when it comes to knowing how to deal with, with children. So I followed his advice and I started to get uh, some postdoctoral training, first in typical uh, children development and then in atypical children development, so that I really became an expert first in recognizing when there were problems and then to be able to fine tune so I could really help not only the child, because anytime a child is impacted with a problem, I really expanded my practice to include treating the whole family because I really wanted to, you know, the people who were the moms and dads in the trenches every single day, 24 seven, these are the people that needed to be also uh, very much supported. And so now I do my practice with my parents and myself on the front lines together so that we are really uh, approaching dealing with children with uh, any kind of concerns as a team. Um, now, how I ended up helping children with selective mutism is kind of an interesting story. So originally, my specialty was autism spectrum disorder. And I was trained by a wonderful, wonderful mentor, Dr. the late Dr. Stanley Greenspan. And Dr. Greenspan at the time was in Maryland, as were my parents. And what I would do is I would commute. Uh, that's actually a nice story. My father was the chief resident to Dr. Greenspan when Dr. Greenspan was in training. So after I had gotten uh, through some of my postdoctoral work, again, I returned to my dad and I said, well, dad, what do you think? And he says, well, you know, I, I think you should continue to fine tune and uh, introduced me to uh, his former student, uh, Dr. Greenspan, who had just started a type of intervention called DIR floor time, which is a developmental relational approach of working with both children and families, where you woo a child into the potential for an interactive uh, experience, which helps a child move forward both developmentally and, and conscious of their regulatory issues. And, and you become that anchor for the children. So um, I remember that I was referred by a psychiatrist to children who the psych, excuse me, a psychiatrist, pardon me, a pediatrician. The pediatrician thought that these two children had uh, autism because they were so shut down verbally and, and poor eye contact and so forth. I looked at these kids and I remember calling up my mentor, Dr. Greenspan, and saying, Stan, these kids are not autistic. I know this, but I, what am I looking at here? And so I described this, the children were able to speak in select places and with select persons. And he goes, oh, this is selective mutism. I'd never heard of that before. And he goes, oh, floor time works great with these kids. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to jump right in. So I worked with these two children and this had to be probably about, gosh, almost 17, 18 years ago at this point, maybe even longer. And it went beautifully. And I really began to expand my practice um, and developed ultimately uh, a real area of expertise. And I am just, a, there's just a handful of us actually in Southern California who do have the area of expertise when it comes to selective mutism. My form of intervention is DIR floor time. And uh, in my practice, I run, I am uh, both the owner and the executive director of a multidisciplinary treatment facility in West Los Angeles. Uh, I, I'm very proud to be an owner as a female, you know, to mm -hmm. own my, uh, my business. 
And uh, we have a one-stop wellness where children can come to our facility and not only be treated for mental health concerns and themselves and the entire family, but we have occupational therapy and physical therapy, uh, speech and language supports, education, really anything except hard medicine under one roof, uh, which is located in West Los Angeles. That, by the way, that's perfect timing because that happens to be our newest therapy dog, Elsa. Oh. <laughs> she is very much a part of our center. And I'll tell you, when you mentioned my book, uh, Alpha, You and Me Are Twins, we have been blessed at the center for uh, probably, we've had now six therapy dogs. Elsa is our latest she is a beautiful golden retriever, and she wanted to let you know loud and clear that she also helps. <laughs> she is very much a, a team member. And what's interesting, part of our technique of working with children with, with, the, with selective mutism, we go ahead and use our, our animals. And I've had children who actually will talk to the dog before they talk to me. And I remember one child, uh, I had a, a, a beautiful German Shepherd uh, Husky mix, and her name was Schluffy. Oh. She is beautiful, and it was just outstanding. She would go ahead and uh, be able to sort of navigate those ears, and she looked like she's really paying attention to you. So I asked this one little girl. I said, "Why do you? Why was it when you first started to talk, you talked to Schluffy and 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 uh, first? And she looked at me. She goes, "Well, Doctor Hess is because Schluffy knows how to keep a secret better than anybody I know." And I said, "Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely, a lot of sense. So that's how I sort of got into the business of psychology, and more specifically, very much into the business of treating children and families who are impacted by selective mutism." Wow, what a story Thank and you. a journey up to that. Uh, do you remember the first solo you know, therapy session with the selective mutism child? Do you remember the first one you had? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as part of my assessments, I go into home, I, I observe a child in school, and then I have the parents bring the child into the playroom so that I can see the child in all different kinds of surroundings, where they are the most comfortable, where they would probably be the most challenged. And it really gives me a full picture of what the child and the parents are experiencing and every, actually every member of the family. So I remember uh, going to the home of this child who was five and mom was desperate because she was realizing that her child was not talking and there was no help. I mean, selective mutism at the time was almost... Uh, an unknown quantity, and she reached high and low, and and, and uh, was, you know, was able to to connect with me, and so I, I came to the house, and the child was playing baseball. She was actually the pitcher, and so I said, "Oh, I want to play baseball." So immediately, part of the technique of being a wonderful play therapist is after you sort of figure out the child's developmental issues, what possibly are some of the uh, regulatory issues you know, in, in, a, in, a, in terms of their own neurophysiology that could be interfering and then using your own personal relationship, your affect to sort of drive that relationship forward, you get to play. So I'm, I think I, I, one of the best parts of my job is I get to play a lot with kids. So I come on to this baseball diamond that's in front of the family's house and I said, okay, I'm ready. You got to teach me how to play baseball. 
And I don't think this child had ever seen anything like that. <laughs> you know, she's, here's this adult who wants to play. And I say, I need a hat and show me, do I stand here? And I kept having, I just played dumb the entire afternoon. And finally, like, where do I stand? And the child looked at me and finally she said, oh, stand over there. (laughs) (laughs) And the mother who had never heard this child speak to anybody else said, oh, my God, she's talking. And I didn't and I don't make a big deal. But once the children start talking to me, it's just okay. We just we're having a relationship. That's how children get better with me. They have a relationship. Yes. Yes. And and so I remember that. And and once once we started, we kind of cracked open that that uh, initial initial wall there we just kept going and just having the, the best times and then we would go I, I one of uh, the tenants of floor time is to get out into the community to expose a child and so we would go all over the place so again going back to our therapy dogs this child at the time did not have a dog in her in her life but she adored my dog and so um, we actually had two dogs we had a big golden retriever named nugget and then we had schluffy this uh, husky shepherd mix and uh, so we walked over to the pet store that was not far from my office. And it was like, well, you've got to ask because we need two different kinds of bones. Schluffy is a different size than Nugget, which was the big golden retriever. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so she, now there was a purpose. And, and so we worked on exposure. We worked on exposure that it wasn't simply about saying something and getting a reward for saying. It was purposeful in the context of what we were doing together. And so uh, we would go all over town together. And, uh, and this child now is uh, in graduate school. And uh, I get these wonderful love letters around Christmas time and, and telling me how she's doing. And uh, no, she's what it was my, my very first person. And I very feel very blessed to have that relationship. Oh, that's amazing that you still talk to her. It shows the, the significant impact that you, you make as a therapist. Mm, absolutely. Okay, great. What about the causes of selective mutism? I know research says it can be caused by environmental factors or a predisposition of anxiety in the family. Do you think one is more common than the other? And do you notice similar patterns that relate to the causes in different children diagnosed? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination issue, to be honest with you. I mean, one of the things that I do, as I mentioned in my assessment, I spend the first two sessions actually without the children. I get parents' history first and foremost. Mm. Uh, what's the quality of their marriage? What's going on in the house? And when I'm talking about what's the parents' developmental history, I'm going to go down uh, three to four to five generations if I can. You know, was there anybody else who was either diagnosed with selective mutism or anxiety disorders or late talkers? or in, inhibited, and inevitably I'm going to find a parent, um, an uncle, uh, you know, the, my mom will say, well, that was, that was me. And I, I find out this for, for many reasons. One of them is because, uh, and by the way, I just want to state, I'm not an advocate for medication. I'm an advocate for kids. But every once in a while, we sometimes do need to consider medication as a way to help our children move forward. But let's say, for example, that mom also was, she said, I was shy. You know, I was, I was uh, miserably shy, actually, is what I remember this parent's term. And uh, she had been on a certain medication that had been very, very bad for her. And I said, okay, well, that's an important piece to know because that needs to go, if we would go the route of medication at some point in this child's uh, 
you know, path with me, then it would be really important to let, whether it was a pediatrician or a child psychiatrist who was uh, prescribing to know that parent had a very bad reaction or conversely, parent had a very good reaction and so forth. So that if we had to start with a medication or avoid a medication, we have a base. So that's, that's the one piece. Um, but I also think that sometimes environmental circumstances absolutely do contribute. I mean, this past year in uh, you know, 2020, in terms of the pandemic, has been horrific for all kids. All kids uh, have. I, I, I will tell you that um, I, I and, and majority of my mental health clinicians, my colleagues, we have never worked so hard in our life because the children have been hurting so badly from the injuries associated with the isolation um, the having to use only Zoom to communicate for children who have who are challenged with their communication to not be in the structure of a school system, to have parents who are so stressed. And so if you have a predisposition and then you have an environmental experience, there's often a collision. And this is what I experience uh, in terms of, of some of the, the root causes for, um, you know, for selective mutism. I know a lot of children with selective mutism are diagnosed when they're really young, and I know that's partly because that's when they start school and it can come up. Is there a common age that you see a child is when they go through selective mutism and when they eventually overcome it if they do, um, or can it happen at any time? Well, my experience generally is that children with selective mutism have that predisposition and they are first labeled as shy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, then it's a shyness that they don't outgrow. So inevitably, I'll get a phone call. Probably the youngest child I've seen was two and a half. That's, and that's generally pretty young because by that point, parents are seeing something, but they're saying, oh, that child is just shy. And, then, and people can live with the shy and then outgrow it type of message for probably anywhere until the child is maybe four or five years old. What happens when the child goes to school and the teachers begin to report various forms of isolation and, and silence that, that the child you know, might experience. And so, and it varies, it, you know, it varies, it varies with the child. Like, for example, this, just this morning, I was observing a child in a school with, with, who has selective mutism and she does speak to one select child in the class to no other child and, and not to her teachers. So she is, uh, she's just under the age of four. That's about the time I would see a child, sometimes maybe five. And I watched, she's very bright. She's very capable in this case, again, because selective mutism presents all differently for different kids. She will not speak verbally, but she will participate non-verbally. So there's a lot of head shaking. There is a lot of pointing. And at this point in preschool, the teachers really are not having too much of a hard time getting their point across and understanding the child's you know, communication style. But it doesn't, my, my experience is, it, you know, unlike shyness, which perchance will not become something else in terms of selective mutism and may be outgrown. Typically, my experience with selective mutism, the longer you wait for intervention, the longer a child suffers. So uh, when I see a child, oftentimes, I would say at a minimum, it's six months. But I said, I think typically a child begins to get more comfortable. And usually I see some significant changes between six months and 18 months. Mm. 
Since the awareness and available help has gotten better over the years, have you been noticing uh, the improvements in children happening sooner than they did back when you first started treating kids with selective mutism and now that the awareness is gaining traction? Sure. Um, I would say yes and no. And what do I mean yes and no? There is certainly an awareness of selective mutism, but it's not nearly as popular a disorder as, for example, autism spectrum disorder, because I think a lot more money has been able to be poured into the promotion of, right. of autism spectrum. The, the, the issue has to be considered like this. Because there is better awareness in general, um, and I go back to the work of one of my mentors, Alyssa Chapon Blum, when her own daughter uh, was diagnosed with selective mutism. It wasn't until she was diagnosed with a variety of other disorders, including autism, including cognitive delay. And she realized, and this is probably about, uh, gosh, close to 20 years ago, where there's no other resources. So she created uh, a wealth of resources uh, to help her own child and has a, I believe she has a center in Philadelphia. And um, but people began to start using resources. One of my hesitations in the sense that you're hearing my voice is because I'm still educating families and I'm still educating uh, schools. In fact, the school that I mentioned this morning, the uh, teacher said to me, and she's a very sweet teacher. She said, do you think that this child's just being kind of stubborn? You know, should I just sort of demand that, that she talk to me? And so and and the and the answer is obviously not. And I I spoke to her different strategies to to have the child um, participate, and so different ways that she could evaluate the child because she was concerned how she could actually grade the child. And granted, it's preschool, so the grade is not going to be so dramatic. But again, I think there is still, to some degree, um, not enough information um, that is you know as known. So one of the, my goals. Uh, certainly as a former board member of the Selective Mutism uh, Association, there are marvelous materials in the association's library, particularly for teachers, that are available. And I make a point when I do go visit to schools that I hand to the teachers a, a an operational book for them to see how to help the child with selective mutism in the classroom. And uh, I always, I, I go out and I make a point to lecture. I mean, I've been doing Zooming over this last year, but thank goodness the pandemic is receding. So uh, I'm actually going to be speaking to a large association of private schools in, uh, in the fall about specifically about selective mutism. So I continue to educate. Uh, and, and yes, the word is getting out more rapidly and children are being recognized and not penalized uh, so that's a positive, but I still think that we have a ways to go. Yes, for sure. I remember too, when I was little, we didn't have any of that. Like we didn't have just a therapist coming in and giving the teacher a guide. They were just kind of like, oh, well, she doesn't talk. She has a problem. That's it. Um, so it was, I think that's very helpful because, you know, the kids already feel, they know they're different. I think that that helps tremendously to, to kind of normalize it in a way even though it's not really normal, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. I absolutely. So unlike when I went through selective mutism as a child, the internet and social media today is a huge part of our daily lives. How do you think this affects children with selective mutism? And do you think there are both advantages and disadvantages to living in a digital world, or one more so than the other? Um, I'm 
I will tell you that we live in a digital world. It's an excellent question because I think we will forever live in a digital world from this point on. I mean, you and I are communicating right now digitally. And uh, I think that it should be embraced. And there's been wonderful, wonderful gains continue to be so with technology. That being said, I do think that having children, as I mentioned just a moment before, um, having to learn through Zoom, having to communicate and do play dates virtually is tragic. And it's been particularly difficult for our children who have selective mutism. Um, initially, a lot of my kids with selective mutism tend to present uh, as somewhat more introverted. And that may, may not actually be accurate, but because they're so reluctant and reticent to be uh, available in the world, people will sort of pigeonhole them into that sort of introverted position. But nonetheless, uh, my my kids initially thought, oh, good, you know, they don't have to go to school. They don't have to deal with the daily exposure that caused them so much stress about going to, into the classroom. However, the structure of life was gone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when they did have to go on Zoom, which, which usually I think it took, I go back anywhere from two weeks to maybe a month for schools to sort of get it and get their kids on the Zoom and, and uh, you know, demand that suddenly they had to be in front of a screen for hours upon hours to learn. And, uh, and everybody was trying to figure it out and, and tensions were high. And my kids who, you know, maybe they got by uh, by being quiet and observing and taking in information, suddenly were on the spot where they had to answer. And it's okay, now the camera and all the focus is on you. That was devastating. I mean, I had parents calling me, uh, you know, one mom literally crying saying, my, I can't, I, my, you know, the child's not, she ducks down under the table. I can't, I'm, I have to be in the room with her. I don't know what to do to keep her engaged. And parents would admonish the child. So that caused greater tensions in the class, in, in, the, in the home life rather. So um, yeah, it was awful. It was absolutely, you know, an awful, awful experience. Now, negative of, of pandemic. The positive is, though, I do think that sometimes children can start practicing, you know, digitally um, and begin to. I've had children who I started when I when I only I, I got back into my practice in person pretty early. By June of last year, we were we were back at the center basically because so many of my parents were saying, my, my kids are just struggling so badly. You have to come back to, to the office. So I was responding. But um, initially, you know, back in March and April and May, we were beginning to do sessions and we'd have to be really creative and fun so that the child sort of forgot that we're doing therapy. You know, I, I would pull up all different kinds of occupational therapy supports. In fact, I said to one mom, whose child was, was having such hard anxiety to just be in the session with me uh, on Zoom. And I said, you know what, mommy, I know that you have a trampoline in your house. Could you pull the trampoline up to the screen? And that child was able to do therapy with me by bouncing on the trampoline. Okay? Wow. And, that was, and that was okay. So we, So what happened was I had to modify all my techniques to make, to be super engaging and to really be supportive of the underlying issues. And then my ch- children uh, were, would, would, was, were able to flourish even in this uh, dramatically, you know, all tech world. But I will tell you a very funny story. So now June comes around 
and the parent was not comfortable to come back into the office, but we made an arrangement to go into a park. Okay, so we would be outside and everybody masked and social distancing and, and gloved. And this is all, you know, back in, in June of 2020. Mm-hmm. And so I parked my car next to the family's car and I got out of the, uh, I got out of the car. And this child had never met me, right, except for on the, on the Zoom. And <laughs> she was already starting to talk to me a bit, you know, on Zoom. So I get into, I get out of the car and the child looks at me and spontaneously says, Dr. Hess, you're much taller in person. (laughs) You've been looking at me through the screen. I've been a little tiny box. (laughs) So that was, uh, that's my favorite, my favorite selectively mute, uh, getting out of tech, tech world story. Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. I know you already talked about uh, the pandemic and all of that. I wanted to touch a little bit on like social media too, especially because mm-hmm. Instagram and, and all that. And I know that's so difficult for like, especially teens today and kids trying right. to get by and it, it causes, I don't know, it, even to me, it seems like it would cause me to feel like I don't fit in sometimes, or it's like this constant competition of taking the best picture, filtering it, doing all this. How, right. like, how do you think a child with selective mutism would look at that? Do you think that they would see that as an opportunity to not have to speak and and become popular just through pictures? Or do you think that it makes them feel even worse or both? I I don't see it as a positive, I'll be honest Mm -hmm. with you. I think that children, unfortunately, feel the competition. They feel that they have what I see is, well, I see a couple of things. Sometimes children use the social, the, the, the ability of social media and, and some of the Instagram stuff to like to be playful because a couple of my kids got creative. There are different kinds of apps like you can look like an animal. Right. And, <laughs> as you speak. and so, so that actually was a positive because I had sometimes kids become like a kitty cat or a duck or a pig, you know, as they would talk to me. And that was actually a way for them to tolerate the initial contact with me. Okay. So that, there was a good piece to the technology, but, but the idea of social media, it's awful. First mm. off, I, I have a prejudice against the fact that you can't have 750 friends. It doesn't exist. <laughs> right. But, you know, but we try to delude ourselves and I think we are hungry for social connections. And therefore we sort of created this sort of artificial world, um, you know, where we need to sort of tell everybody every moment of our lives. My selectively mute kids struggle with this. And at times they may actually compromise themselves in situations because they so badly want to become you know, part of the group, but um, you know, they struggle. And so I have a lot of kids who, who feel like failures because they can't be, uh, they're not socially adept to the social media or they feel not included. And it just becomes another awareness, a painful awareness that they are separate and different from other kids. I feel like that would help the whole animal thing where you kind of hide behind it. Right. Right. <laughs> and um, right. It's, yeah. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. I never thought of that. So, so, you know, positives and, 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 and otherwise, but, uh, and then, you know, again, creativity of, of the clinician, I learned how to, I, I'm in a wonderful peer 
peer uh, supervision group through selective, the selective mute association. And uh, we would learn all different kinds of techniques to keep the kids engaged, including all different kinds of interactive games that, you know, are suggestive eventually to child speaking. So again, the technology available allowed us to, you know, connect if you were creative enough. But uh, overall, in terms of the social media piece, I think it's actually pretty destructive. So you, do you suggest having no social media at all for selective mutism kids or just very little, like having, you know, limits? I, I suggest for all kids having very little because mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. also I think it's it's a big disservice to children and families when children are inside all day long. And instead of going out and playing and really attempting to be, you know, to be social and communicative, they are behind a screen. And so I think what we're doing is we are raising children really in isolation. And what are the consequences to us as a peoplehood, you know, when we do that? So I, I think there is a point to social media. There is a, uh, a need to get your, get your work through. A lot of times it's, it's, it's a great way to um, use technology as a way to gain for you know, academically. But I think it's, uh, it can be abused too often. And I do have times where kids become addicted um, mm-hmm. to hours and hours and hours behind screen time and, and less and less opportunity to be social and communicative in the real world. So right. I, don't, I don't like this artificial world that's been created. There is a, it's a tool, and I, I appreciate it, but in small doses. Yeah, I see less and less kids playing outside, and that's Absolutely. always sad to me. Okay, Dr. Hess, I'd like to stop there for a moment because it's time for Love Letter Break. Welcome to Love Letter Break. This is a break I take in each episode where I ask my guests to come up with one to three people to give a shout out to and express gratitude, people who've made a difference in their life. So Dr. Hess, I know you have two people for your Love Letter Break, and who are they and what would you like to say to them? Well, I would love to give this Love Letter Break to, first off, my dad. I mentioned his name was Dr. Leon Citrin. He's a passed now about eight years ago, but he has always been my mentor and my guide. He was a child psychiatrist and was the first to recognize that children could be depressed and and they should be treated like adults in the context you could sometimes if necessary, you could medicate and really was my uh, shining example of how to get down on the floor and, and be with children. Uh, so my first uh, love letter break is to Dr. Leon Citrin, who truly put me on the right path to this wonderful passion of what I do every day for a living. And then the other shout out, of course, is to my husband, Alan Sampson. And uh, where my dad started the process, I think Alan has helped me continue. Alan is the kind of guy who wakes up every morning and says, how can I make your life better? And when I came up with the idea for my center, uh, one-stop wellness for families to come to where they didn't have to run from place to place to place for occupational therapy and speech and language and mental health and uh, any other services, um, 
he said, okay, I like that idea. Let's make it happen. And he was actually able to not only be my business partner, but, and my, obviously my life partner, but he helped me actualize my dream. And so I want to really give a, a love letter acknowledgement to both these very important gentlemen in my life. Thank you so much. That's great. My pleasure. So once you diagnose a child, how does the process work with your therapy? Does it take time to decide on a treatment plan? And do you have any special tactics that you do in your practice? Treatment starts at assessment, basically. And what I do, as I mentioned to you in the early part of our discussion today, is I meet with people. families six times before I make a diagnosis. And during that time, I would have met family parents, typically uh, first for at least twice before I meet the child to get both the family's uh, developmental history and then anything and everything about the child that I need to know to help me from conception on out to understand who this child is, because I think of myself still as somewhat of, of a detective. Then I go ahead and, as mentioned, I have three observational sessions uh, in the home and the school uh, and then back in my playroom where I watch, for example, how daddy plays for half an hour and mommy plays and then myself. And again, I'm, I'm referencing a mommy and daddy, but you can have two daddies, two mommies. The issue is how does the family operate together so that uh, I understand the dynamics of what the child is going through. Typically, I will film with permission those those observations. I review the films, and then I meet with parents for a sixth and final time to go over and come up with both a, diagnos- a diagnosis and a treatment plan. Typically, my treatment plans uh, are to bring the child into the office. Um, if it's not an acute issue, which would necessitate me seeing them a little bit more often, it's often it's typically once a week. But during those sessions, what I'll do, it's my sessions typically are an hour and a half. The first 45 minutes, I'm on the floor with the parents and with interns that work with me. I, I am I wear many hats, and besides being the executive director at Center for the Developing Mind, which is our facility in West Los Angeles, I also have been teaching for the last 20 years at the at uh, UCLA Medical School. And so I have a wonderful relationship with really all the graduate programs around, and I have fantastic uh, interns from all over the country, really all internationally as well. And so the intern is working with us. And the first 45 minutes, I'm on the floor with the parents, and we're using this floor time process of initially following the lead of my child. In other words, I have a, uh, I, I have several different rooms where children can, can play. I have a less busier playroom. I have a more busy playroom, depending on where that child is uh, developmentally capable. Lately, we've been working a lot in the gymnasium of our facility because children need to move so that they can actually have access to better speech. And uh, after 45 minutes of play, the intern continues the work. So the child gets an hour and a half of the intervention. And then I will take parents into my inner office, which is just outside of my playroom. The room is soundproof uh, so that the child can and the parents can both feel confident to be able to speak at their leisure without any issue of, of overrun and confidentiality. And then I start working with parents on what I saw on the floor, if the parent had some difficulty in terms of playing with their child. And I'll tell you an interesting story about that in a moment. Um, But we also deal with marital issues, uh, whatever else is going on, educational concerns for the child, and use this 45 minutes just with the parents to really brainstorm together. So at the end of that hour and a half, uh, that everybody feels that they've had, so to speak, their floor time moment. When I said about uh, an interesting story 
So there was one dad who uh, was a, a lovely, lovely man, but I could see that when he played with his child, he was really very inhibited. And I brought him into the inner office and I asked him about what was going on. He says, well, you have to understand, um, he introduced himself by saying, I have shyness, right? So his history was he was he was a very inhibited, where he grew up, they didn't ever name it selective mutism, but clearly he was struggling. And when he got down on the floor and looked at his child, he was aware of the genetic predisposition. And so he became angry at his child because he felt that he had given this child this disorder. And so it interfered with his ability to parent. So that's the kind of stuff that we worked on in that inner office during the parent session, as an example. Wow. So he kind of felt guilty in a way. He felt very guilty. He yeah. felt very guilty. And that guilt, unfortunately, was interfering with his ability to um, not be frustrated with his child, right? Because right. he would say, just, you know, just do what I do. Just talk, right? And But obviously not so easy. Yeah. What we don't want done to us, we do to other people because we're struggling. And, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Are there certain determining factors that may make a child more receptive to therapy or medication? Or is there a trial and error aspect to certain treatments? Um, that's a good point. Well, I'll, I'll tell you my, my feeling. You know, you mentioned about the age of when I would see children. Typically, I would say between the ages of three and seven you know, is, is when I'm going to see a child. Lately, it's been more on the younger age, somewhere between three and five. And I'm not necessarily going to go directly to medication as a suggestion, unless I see that, you know, the, the child is so shut down that we need a little extra support. But the problem is, if I have a child who's been introduced to me now as a teenager, so that their brain has had a long time to work at this misunderstanding of environmental cueing where they're shutting down verbally, then more often than not, one of the more immediate ways to start helping that child is to consider medication. Um, and the medication has to be done with someone. I prefer two things. If I, I Pediatricians are wonderful and they certainly can prescribe, but I really do prefer a child psychiatrist and somebody who's well-versed in anxiety and preferably selective mutism. The other thing I want for my, for my child psychiatrist who I work with is I want to be able to have good communication with him or her because I want to be able to call sometimes in the middle of a session and say, this is what I'm seeing. It's not working or, 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 oh, no, keep at it because it's working really well. And I need to be able to have someone who can adapt and pivot with me and uh, for us to have an open communication. And oftentimes because, um, you know, psychotropic medication is really has, especially for children, except for ADHD medication, most other psychotropic medications is really somewhat of a trial and error. They're taking adult doses and they are sort of uh, minimizing them for children and sort of seeing how it works. And we, we've done this enough times, so we sort of know more or less. But of course, it's always start low, continue very slowly. And you do it, it is a bit of a trial and error to see if something will take and, and take well. So, um, so I don't jump into medication, as I mentioned before, my advocacy is for children, not for medication, but depending on the actual age and what's going on for that child. And if there are any other secondary issues or, or comorbidities, I may have to think about, um, suggesting to parents and looking at their comfort level, uh, you know, whether or not to use medication. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. When a child with selective mutism does begin to speak, is there a certain group of people that they usually speak to first, like strangers, 
friends, family members. Because I know when I started overcoming it, I felt weird to speak to people who knew me when I had it. And I've heard that from other selective mutism kids. Is there a reason that they feel that way, do you think? Well, I'll tell you what the reasons that children have said this to me, that a lot of times switching kids like to new schools has helped. It's mm-hmm. almost like the first original place has is become what we call contaminant. And they feel embarrassed either by the sound of their, a misunderstanding of how their voice sounds. So they feel that that's sort of a distorted uh, uh, sound when they listen to themselves. Uh, or they don't necessarily want to be um, known as the child who speaks now. You know, like the worst thing you can do is like point out to a child who has selective mutism. Oh my gosh, you're talking now. Yes. The quickest way to shut them down, right? Yes. So uh, I, I do think it's a, it's, it's a, it's not uncommon when I when parents have said, you know, should I switch schools and they're willing to do that, that children suddenly will start talking um, after they've done therapy and so forth because now they sort of feel they can really start start fresh and they don't have a, a label like, oh, she's the one who doesn't talk or he's the one who doesn't talk you know, as, as an example. Um, you know, often I become one of the first people that children speak to. And then we generalize that relationship and that skill base to other other people. Or as I said before, uh, when I shared with you that lovely story of um, my friend speaking to my dog, you know, and, and saying because she could, you know, the dog could keep secrets better than anybody else. <laughs> but I think you also need to know when a child is ready to speak. So I'll share with you a lovely little story. I had a young lady who didn't speak but she would always, and this, by the way, this happens inevitably. I have a variety of different toys and games and opportunities to play in my, in my playroom. And inevitably, my children with selective mutism always choose the toy that makes noise. Because for me, they're making a statement. I want you to know I am not quiet because I want to be quiet. There's something going on with me, but I want you to know that I do talk. I do make noise. And so they do that by by picking the toy that that makes the loudest sound and so forth. So one day, a little girl comes to me and she had been in my practice now for about a year and a half. And she was beginning, beginning, beginning to start making um, more like grunts sounding and so forth and pointing and, and really having good eye contact. And there was a definite readiness, you know, with, with going on. So we're making progress and she brings a telephone, a toy telephone that she had just, she had had lost a tooth and she had taken some of the money that the tooth fairy had given her. And uh, she had gone to the local toy store and bought a, and brought in a, a phone. So we always want to use this floor time, basic principle of following the child's lead. So here now we're going to be talking on the phone. So I had my own phone, a toy phone, and she had her phone. And I began to talk to her as if she was on the other line and, and going to speak to me. So I said, oh, how are you? Oh, thank you for calling. Um, just a second. Um, somebody's on the phone and they want to know, by the way, in our playroom, do we have any baby ducks? And the girl would nod her head. And I said, well, wait a minute. No, they want to know what baby ducks sound like. The girl hesitated for a moment and then she began to make very soft little quacking sounds. Yes. And I said, well, wait a minute. Are those ducks or swans? They sound like swans to me. So I'm being playful. And before you know it, she's starting to speak and, and well, speak. She's she's now talking animal sounds. A menagerie of animal sounds come out uh, through the telephone. And then we 
wanted to know was there in the playroom, was there any dolls or an, uh, people figures? Was it only animals? And so she began to say yes. And I said, well, what kind of people are there? And she said, there's a big sister. And I said, oh my gosh, what makes her big? And she goes, well, she's 20. And I said, wow, that is very, very big. And I said, what happens when you're 20? So she said, well, when I'm 20, I get to speak. I will speak when I'm 20. And then she stopped and she put the phone down and she looked at me and she said, I'm big. And I said, yes, you are. And that was our first entrance into a fluid dialogue with her. But a lot of kids do that. They sort of say, when I become, when I go into first grade or when I go to camp or when I become 20 or whatever it is in their minds that they are thinking about, then I will do X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z is typically about, I will speak. A lot of times you see uh, the disappointment in themselves and the self-loathing often that comes with this and the depression, as well as the anxiety, when children sort of make these artificial markers for themselves and then they, for whatever reason, don't, aren't able to achieve it. So I, I'm not ever demanding speech with my children. I am simply saying, I want a relationship with you. And having a relationship to me makes children want to have a dialogue with me because it's, that's how we connect. Yeah, I can totally relate to that too, because I remember the first time I spoke in front of a, a classroom was when I started a new middle school. And mm-hmm. the, and I had that in my head for a long time. I said, when I start middle school, I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk. And I did. And it was like during a presentation. And I just remember feeling like it was the scariest thing in the world. But knowing that no one knew me before that helped. And that's what helped me get over it. And no one else knew. I was the only one who knew what a big achievement that was. But Right. Yeah, it, it does help when it's like a fresh start. I don't know. It's just something that you yes. have that goal. Yeah. Sure. Okay. I know you've already talked a lot about the pandemic, so this question might not even be relevant. You probably answered everything, but um, is there anything else you want to say about the pandemic and how it affects kids with selective mutism? Like, do you think there's anything good about being in quarantine? I do think there's a couple. There were there were a couple good things. Um, okay. I think that parents had to be home with their kids and spend time as family. And I think if they had the environment to be able to do so in a healthy way, there was all kinds of benefits from being home together. So I'm a big proponent for going and being with family and going out to the park and doing, and since there wasn't that much to do, you know, the you couldn't necessarily go to the movies or restaurants or you couldn't do all the, the normal diversions, diversions that we do in, in life. I think parents and, and their children actually became closer. So I think if there was a positive for the pandemic, I would say that was it. Um, sometimes my parents really had challenges being home with their kids and there was work conflicts and how to divide up timing and, computers and, and, you know, and, and, and having the correct space. So everybody felt that they weren't necessarily on top of each other. But overall, my experience was being home was uh, a positive, you know, children did gain from being with their parents more, much more than they would have otherwise had the pandemic not hit. But overall, tough, tough experience, as I mentioned before. Yeah, definitely. So I know that for me, when I was growing up, I felt much more comfortable talking on the phone when I didn't face people. And I still feel more comfortable doing that to this day. I mean, obviously I can talk to people and everything, but I notice my anxiety level is way lower on the phone or 
you know, any kind of just audio communication. Is that something that, that children with selective mutism feel because it's just part of that anxiety where they feel like they don't want to look someone in the eye or you notice that, and especially with the pandemic, if they're talking on the phone or through audio, is it much easier for them? I, I, it is, but there is actually a, a neurophysiological reason for it. So what okay. happens is that we've seen studies of children who have to look at somebody in the eye. It's usually associated more with kids who are impacted by autism spectrum disorder. But the, the problem is that these children who are, who are fearful, um, when they are asked to look somebody in the eye, they tend to, um, their amygdala really, really gets over aroused and they shut down because it's like as if we're being asked to look at something terribly frightening. And so phone obviously would be easier. I, I still prefer in-person contact. And I'll tell you what I do. I traditionally wear flower in my hair. I started it because I went to Hawaii once and I saw these women wearing these flowers. And I said, oh, I like that. I'm going to do that myself. And then it just sort of stuck because um, instead of having children be ordered to look at something that was uncomfortable, I have flowers in my hair. And so you naturally sort of scan to where the flower is. And that helps the child um, sort of like, I, I, you know, get into this general area of my eyesight and I go, oh my gosh, you've got beautiful eyes. And so now I've captured their attention without demanding it. And, um, and so I, I, I run with that. Yes, I, I, I can understand why talking on the phone would feel more comfortable, but I really want to practice, you know, interactive experiences in the most supportive fashion. That's a great story about the flower in your hair. Thank you. It's a benefit. <laughs> I agree. With your experience and knowledge, what would you like to say to kids and parents or anyone involved in selective mutism who are feeling hopeless and having a lot of fear at this time? Well, I will tell these families, I have never been accused of being a Pollyanna, meaning that I don't believe in giving parents false hope, but I do believe in creating a hopeful expectation and really what I would like to tell parents is that if you suspect that your children are not speaking and this is beyond the normal shyness and so on, then call up your local mental health practitioner, reach out to the Selective Mutism Association uh, and find who's in your, in your neck of the woods, who does treat and see, you know, get peace of mind, get your child evaluated. We know the earlier the intervention, uh, the better. This disorder, uh, really, the child is, is, you know, shouldn't have to suffer. And by getting early intervention, you will create an opportunity for children to have as full a life developmentally as, as possible. And there is a lot of positive and, and hopeful expectations that come with treatment. I, I can't encourage you enough to reach out and uh, make the first call and say, you know what, I think something's going on with my child. I always tell a parent, I congratulate them when they call and say, there's nothing uh, but one parent said, I feel foolish because I'm calling. It's probably nothing. And I said, there's nothing about a good parent being foolish. You are trusting your gut. I trust your gut. I'm glad you called. And now let's do our work together. So if anyone out there, any listeners out there want to contact you and they think they might have a child with selective mutism or just have questions, how would they go about doing that? What's your contact information? Sure. Let me, let me give you. So as I said, I'm the executive director of a 
multidisciplinary treatment facility in West Los Angeles called Center for the Developing Mind. We're located at the intersection of the 10 and the 405 freeways at 2990 South Sepulveda, Suite 308, and that's LA90064. You can reach me either directly by phone, and that number is 323-428-4639, and that is the fastest way to get a hold of me, but you can also certainly go on my website, which is www.centerforthedevelopingmind.com, or email me directly at Dr. Hess, the only capital is that first D, like David, D-R-H-E-S-S, at center, C-E-N-T-E-R, four is F-O-R, the, T-H-E, developing, D-E-V-E-L-O-P-I-N-G, mind, M-I-N-D dot com. So it's a mouthful, but uh, <laughs> I will definitely, I'm very, uh, I review my emails uh, quite a bit during the day, and I will be happy to respond to you and any questions that you have. Great. Okay. So to end the podcast, I ask every guest this question and it's inspired by selective mutism, actually. If you could say only one more sentence or phrase out loud for the rest of your life, what would it be? I have the best job in the whole wide world. I get to play with kids and toys every single day. Amazing. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts you want to say before we end? No, I just want to thank you again, because I do think that this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to reach families. And I know there are a lot of people out there who are suffering. I think that there is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for families to get the kind of help that they and their children need. So I look forward to hearing from from any of the listeners who would like to just not even come in for to use the practice. If they just have any questions, I'm always happy to answer any direct questions that parents may be you know, wondering or considering. Yeah, you're always so receptive. I love that. Please. My pleasure. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the episode and sharing all that you've learned. And you're just amazing. So I I know it's going to help a lot of people. So I thank you so much again for being a part of this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for for thinking of me and always a lot of fun to to hang out with you. Thank you. All right, guys, that wraps up our three-part episode series on selective mutism. I want to thank all my guests again who have been a part of these episodes, the parents, Anne and Pam, who were on the last episode, and of course, Dr. Hess, who was on this episode. I want to thank them for sharing their experiences and their opinions and wisdom. It's really been great to hear these different perspectives on a disorder that I struggled with a lot as a child. And I'm sure it's going to help so many families out there. So thank you to the guests again. If you guys want to know more information about selective mutism, I highly encourage you to check out the organization that I volunteer for. They're called Selective Mutism Association, and they can be found at www.selectivemutism.org. They're a nonprofit organization that uses funds to raise awareness and give out information about selective mutism, and they also hold programs for kids with the disorder. They also hold an annual conference that brings together therapists, parents, and more to share their knowledge, and it just provides a platform for networking. So they're really great. I really encourage you to check them out. You can also check out my website, eringlow.com. There's a selective mutism page on there that has information as well. If you want to ask me any questions directly about selective mutism or anything else, really, you can reach me at erin at eringlow.com. I'm also on most social media at eringlow. 
So thank you guys so much for listening, and as always, I'm ending this episode with a relative quote. And this one's from the Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei. And I chose it because I thought it represented what a therapist really aims at when they're with their client. And that quote is, We cannot teach people anything. We can only help them discover it within themselves. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Please rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast if you can. It would help me a lot. And stay tuned for episode four, which will be about an entirely different topic. Until then, I hope you all glow and shine bright. Mm -hmm.